Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, I'm Shona Thompson. What will this year hold for the Canadian military? We speak with Oral Brown, Professor of International Relations at the University of Toronto. A new Ipsos poll for Global News says while many Canadians thought 2022 wasn't so bad for personal finances, there's still some pessimism going into this year. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos, takes us through the numbers. And more athletes are putting their mental health up as a top priority. We saw some of that on Monday night with the players not wanting to to go ahead with the Bills-Bengals game after the critical injury to DeMar Hamlin. We speak with Dr. Carla Edwards, who's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences with McMaster University. She's also a high-performance mental health advisor for both Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we look ahead to the year that is coming and what might light ahead, we can't help but consider what's happening in our recent past and the impact that is going to have this year for the Canadian military. The commander of the Canadian Army says his force is being squeezed by more demands at home and abroad, especially in Europe, even as the number of soldiers available for such missions is shrinking. In an interview with the Canadian press, Lieutenant General Joe Paul says the Army shrunk by 1,200 soldiers last year as departures outpaced recruiting. And it could lose hundreds more this year unless the situation changes. Right now, the numbers are not uh, as high as we would like. So if we remain on the same trajectory, unfortunately, we can probably anticipate shrinking by another 800. There's also been the recent debate about how or even if the military should be involved in domestic emergencies like COVID or natural disasters. There's also the war in Ukraine and that we've sent equipment in to help fight, but that does leave us without. And as the war drags on, it raises the question of whether our deployment will eventually include boots on the ground. There's also the protection of our Arctic against Russian incursions and being prepared to fight with new technology. Here to talk about these issues and more is Oral Brown, who's professor of inter- international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Well, as mentioned, uh, there are a number of issues facing the Canadian military, but it always seems to be the case, doesn't it? It has been this for a long time. And General uh, Eyre is very diplomatic, and he states the case in a very calm and a very modest fashion. But in fact, uh, our military has been in a crisis for Many years we have underfunded our military. We have made extraordinary demands of our troops who are people who have made great sacrifices for the country. They have not been adequately appreciated. But most importantly, we have engaged in magical thinking, believing that we can accomplish a great many vital tasks in the international system uh, without paying the price. Is General Wayne Eyre the person to take the Canadian Armed Forces forward? He certainly seems to be a very capable individual. And what he laid out is a world as it is, rather than a world as we wish it to be. And this is a world where there are dangers everywhere, where Canada is a very crucial player in the international system. We are a G7 country. We have vast resources. Naturally, we would like to spend those resources, our financial resources, on healthcare, on education, on housing. It's all understandable. But if we cannot keep our citizens safe, we cannot protect or help protect our allies, then all those other tasks 
that are so crucial cannot be done either. So this is the inconvenient reality that we have to confront. Well, you know, you were mentioning that, of course, Canada is a G7 member. We're also a member of NATO. But we haven't lived up to our financial obligations to NATO, certainly in a long time, if ever. In a very long time, way back at the NATO Wales conference in 2014, there was an undertaking that there would be guidelines that we would reach all collectively, every state, a spending level of roughly 2% of the GDP, and that uh, something like 20% of that would be spent on equipment. And Canada has not even come remotely close to that. And yet we are a vast country. We are facing three oceans. We not only have obligations in Europe as members of NATO, but we are a Pacific state, and we can see what China is doing, how it's behaving more and more aggressively. And we have the Arctic. We want to protect our sovereignty. Russia has been militarizing the Arctic in a very rapid fashion for a great many years. So what we are facing right now is not new, but we, in a sense, lulled ourselves into a false sense of security, that somehow Canada was unique in the world, that we were immune to the pressures that other countries might be subjected to. The reality is, of course, we are not. Geopolitics comes uh, after all of us. What is the likelihood of Canadian boots being on the ground in the war in Ukraine? It depends a great deal on what we do now to avoid that. The people of Ukraine have shown a remarkable determination to defend themselves against the naked aggression by Russia. And they not only have demonstrated that determination, but also an an astonishing capability against superior enemies. And what they seek is the support of the Allies in terms of weapons, in terms of financial support, and they can do the job. And uh, they showed that, shown have shown that. So there would be no need for boots on the ground uh, unless Ukraine collapses. And that would feed Russia's ambition because we know that Russians, uh, uh, the ambitions of the Russian regime and the Vladimir Putin does not stop at Ukraine. Ukraine is the first step, uh, not the last one, were they to be successful. So we must do everything possible to ensure that Ukraine wins. Well, we've been hearing about the 10-point peace plan that Zelensky uh, has been talking about, not only on calls for an end to the war, but includes the full withdrawal of Russian troops and the restoration of pre-invasion Ukrainian borders. Uh, What is the likelihood that this plan is going to go forward? Because Putin is not a guy to say, you know, fine, I'm done. At the moment, the chances are extraordinarily minimal because Vladimir Putin still believes that having switched from a war of aggression to a war of terror, he can wear Ukraine down and that he can intimidate and divide the West. And so consequently, until he becomes disabused of this fantasy, he is not likely to negotiate realistically. And realistically, Russia has to get out of Ukraine. This kind of aggression cannot be rewarded because the precedent that it would establish is not only something that is a threat 
in Europe, but will also set an example for China and China's ambitions regarding Taiwan and the South China Sea. So the entire international system is affected by what is happening in Ukraine. There is so much at stake. And reality has to be brought home to Vladimir Putin. And that reality is that he's leading a kleptocracy in a remnant of the Soviet Union and that he cannot solve his domestic problems through dangerous international adventures. We have allowed him to do that for a long time. We, if we look back at January of last year, we were talking about the possibility of Russia attacking Ukraine. But the reality was that Russia had already attacked Ukraine. They had already attacked Ukraine in 2014, and we did not introduce effective sanctions. Uh, when sanctions were introduced in 2014, the heads of many of the largest uh, international companies, like Total in France, rushed to Moscow to tell the Russian government, no, business will be just as before. It will be business as usual. We will continue to make our profits. The Germans were willing to build Nord Stream 2, despite the fact that in 2014, Russia had invaded and illegally annexed Crimea. So we in the West bear a heavy responsibility for what has happened in uh, Ukraine, particularly since February of last year, when we had the all-out invasion of Ukraine by the Russian regime. We're speaking with Oral Brown, who's professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And uh, I wanted to get back to what you were saying earlier about Putin's expansionist um, ideology and the fact that they have been more than just elbowing in in the Arctic, in the Canadian Arctic, uh, trying to take control of the North Pole, mostly what's beneath the North Pole. But there have been those incursions. And, and I mean, that's something that needs to be on the minds of, uh, of Canadians and on the federal government in terms of funding um, a, a better and stronger uh, presence up in the Arctic. Absolutely. Russia has been militarizing the Arctic they have invested a vast amount of money in reopening old Soviet bases, in building new ones, uh, bringing uh, additional capacity. With climate change, there may be possibilities for navigation through the Northern Sea Route. That would be absolutely crucial. If uh, the Russians get to control that, that would give them an additional tool to blackmail the rest of the world. Resource extraction in the Arctic, which is a very dangerous place to explore because of the fragility of the ecology, is something that Russia is proceeding with absolutely unhindered. And if there is an accident, whatever happened in the Gulf of Mexico would look minor by comparison. Russia is already extracting a great deal of energy from the Arctic, which it is selling internationally. The Arctic holds perhaps 25% of the world's fossil fuel uh, energy reserves, but they are very dangerous to extract. Russia doesn't care about those dangers. No, it it doesn't. That's not been on high on the list. I mean, they've been, you know, coming very close to uh, to bombing uh, nuclear power plants in Ukraine. So we can see that um, they're not exactly careful on environmental issues at all. No, and this is what happens when you have a regime 
that uh, is extraordinarily repressive at home. So there were all sorts of warning signs uh, that dictatorships sometimes uh, show uh, before there is additional external aggression. And first comes more domestic repression. So it was not accidental that prior to the second and larger invasion of Ukraine in February of, uh, of, of last year, for many, many months, Russia had engaged in intensive repression of opponents, of civil society organizations. Those should have been warning signs because this is a regime that tries to stay in power, that has betrayed the Russian people. When we look at the Putin regime, it is not only that it's bad for Ukraine, that it is a danger to NATO, it has been a tragedy for the people of Russia. Um, we only have about a minute left, and I'm sorry to give you such little time to to summarize all of this. Are you expecting to see greater funding for the military? It hasn't really been coming down the pipe. I hope there will be because it's not a luxury. It's a necessity. If we could avoid it, I would be all for it because who would not prefer to spend more money on health and education uh, and housing instead? But uh, there is a world as it is. And we must recognize that. And that's what we have to deal with. And not funding the Canadian military uh, is irresponsible. Professor Brown, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oral Brown is professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. We've been talking about some of the challenges that lie ahead for the Canadian military this year and going forward. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A recent Ipsos poll done for Global News is suggesting that most Canadians thought 2022 overall, not that bad a year. But there's also some pessimism out there. Joining us now is the CEO of Ipsos Polling, Daryl Bricker. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. Uh, give us a thumbnail sketch of, uh, of the poll that you did and why you did it. Yeah, we asked Canadians what kind of a year they thought they had. So in other words, do they have a good, bad, or an indifferent year? And, and a, a slight majority said they actually had a pretty good year. Now, relative to other years that we've seen, you know, it's one of those things where he's been down so long, you know, might this looks might look up to you. Like, in other words, it's a, a better than what you've gone through in 2019 and, and 2020. But uh, uh I think what people were communicating to us uh, through their answers to the survey was that in terms of what was going on in their own four walls, things actually were not as bad as they anticipated they might be. Uh, so a majority saying it was it was generally pretty good. But the interesting thing was only about 10% of that group said it had been very good. So it was probably good against uh, some pretty low expectations, but uh, uh, not fantastic. I find that really interesting because, you know, we had inflation, all of the interest rate hikes uh, from the Bank of Canada, the war on Ukraine started, and we've had ripple effects in our economy because of that. So I think it's really interesting that a slight majority thought, you know what, we're, we're okay. Yeah, and we did ask them about a whole bunch of things related to this. And, and you know, one of them was, you know, you compared to Canada versus the world. And the things that you mentioned show their level of pessimism about Canada and the world, but not necessarily about their own personal circumstances. So as I said before, what was going on within their own four walls, uh, they felt that they were handling reasonably well. Uh, But when they looked at Canada overall, um, 
more pessimistic about that. And particularly when they looked at the rest of the world, uh, they saw the rest of the world as a hot mess for all the reasons that you're, uh, that you were given. They don't see the world as going in a very positive direction. But as far as their own personal situation is concerned, uh, they feel that they control, can control that somewhat better, I would think. And they also uh, know how to uh, manage their expectations around that. Um, you, I know Ipsos loves to do the breakdown by provinces, so I know you've probably done that. Uh, and we always appreciate those specific numbers. Are there more pessimistic areas of Canada and some that are less? Yeah, there are places like Alberta, for example, which have gone through a lot of change that are that are more pessimistic. Quebec is uh, actually more optimistic, and you, you can go into whatever cultural reasoning want for, the, for, for why that is. But uh, Quebec tends to be a bit more optimistic perennially. Uh, when, whenever we go in and we ask them questions about, you know, how they're doing in their lives or how the next year is going to go or that kind of thing. But yeah, Western Canada being the, the, the biggest collection of pessimists. And how does Ontario stack up? Uh, as it always does, right in the middle. <laughs> That's what I love about this province. Uh, one of the things that I think was really interesting when you were saying that uh, Quebec seems to be one of the more optimistic places. Um, and I go back to this because the voter turnout in the last three elections <laughs> was just abysmal, um, you know, and I think progressively getting worse from the federal to the provincial to the municipal elections last year. And Quebec had an actually a pretty high voter turnout in comparison. I'm wondering if there's any correlation there. Uh, might very well be. I mean, the, when you take a look at the approval levels for the government of Quebec, they tend to be uh, the, uh, enviable among among some of the national approval levels. I mean, you can go to places like Saskatchewan where they're, they're slightly higher, but uh, uh, Quebec tends to do, do pretty well. They like the Legault government. Uh, but, uh, you know, election turnout isn't as much a... Um, uh, a prediction about how people are feeling either optimistically or pessimistically about what's going on, I think, as sometimes we may interpret. Um, people not showing up it tends to be somewhat of an endorsement of the direction of things, the way things are going anyway. So, for example, if you look at the municipal elections here in uh, in Ontario, particularly places like Toronto, uh, you know, John Tory didn't really have a strong opponent. Uh, and people were generally satisfied with uh, with his performance as the mayor. So they didn't feel a need to show up. But not feeling a need to show up is a communication about satisfaction, not about this satisfaction. Uh, where you tend to find turnout goes up is when people feel the election is of consequence, that there actually is a big decision to be made. So the provincial election, for example, in the province of Ontario, people did not really feel that there needed to be a change of government, that there needed to be a big change in direction, hence a really low turnout. And the people who did turn out basically turned out to vote for the government. So, you know, you can pick through the turnout scenarios and how people participate in election campaigns. But uh, the conclusion isn't always that people are not showing up because they're displeased. I'm, I'm wondering if some of the pessimism um, that was indicated in your poll uh, has to do with, you know, a, a feeling like, OK, we got through 2022 and there were a few bumps on the road uh, during that uh, the course of that year. Uh, there are... Lots of other things that are indicating we could be in for some tough times in 2023. So I'm wondering if it's partly we got through that, but we're not out of this yet. Yeah. And and the other thing I would throw in just for for listeners is that when we asked people whether or not they thought there was going to be a recession, in, uh, in 2023, almost three quarters of us said that there is going to be a recession. So the reason that they're pessimistic is principally on the economy right now. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other issues they're not feeling really great about, for example, like healthcare. But, you know, immediately, 
uh, it's uh, it's issues related to the economy and people not feeling that that situation is going to get any better. In fact, the, the worst thing that can happen is a recession in the minds of the public, and they feel we're on the precipice of one. <sighs> yeah, that remains to be seen as to uh, how all of this is going to be playing out. Daryl, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos. We've been talking about a poll that was done for Global News with regards to how you think you did in 2022 and, well, what might happen this year and how you're feeling about it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There have been a few instances recently where world-class athletes are taking stands to prioritize their mental health. Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka are two examples that come to mind. It was also apparent, though, on Monday night during that critical injury that was suffered by Damar uh, Hamill of the Buffalo Bills. Teammates shielded Hamlin from view as medical personnel administered CPR. He was transferred to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. The game was indefinitely postponed. So the emergency action plan went, in, uh, went into effect. NFL executive Troy Vincent. It never crossed our mind to talk about warming up to resume play. That's that's ridiculous. That's, that's um, insensitive, and that's not a place that, that we should ever be in. I'm Jennifer King. The players didn't want to go on with the game, and the NFL has said that it's not going to be played, at least not this week. Dr. Carla Edwards is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences with McMaster University. She's also a high-performance mental health advisor for both Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada, and she joins us now. Good morning and thank you. Good morning, Shona. Thanks for inviting me. Um, Are we starting to see some uh, change in society in general when it comes to the understanding of the importance of mental health? I think so. Uh, You know, I heard a lot during the game on Monday night, uh, you know, this is unprecedented. This is nothing like we've seen before. Uh, But in fact, we have seen it, unfortunately, before. Thankfully, it's not very common. uh, But players have had cardiac events and other traumatic injuries during sports in the past. And uh, you know, I don't know that any have occurred in such a, a pivotal game that we were seeing on Monday, but uh, the gravity of the situation was certainly clear as soon as uh, people became aware of what was happening and and rightfully so sport ground to a halt. And I mean, we, we know in, in media, people fill, fill the silence with a lot of conjecture and uh, assumptions and suppositions. And there were a lot of things being thrown around, like, you know, the teams have been given five minutes to warm up and then they're going to be expected back. But since Monday, we've we've heard uh, from the NFL that that was not true. So, um, you know, I think it was clear from the beginning that the teams could not take that field reasonably, that the players could not reasonably have been expected to resume play. Uh, it was the anguish was clear on their faces that, uh, you know, sport was no longer front of mind at that moment. And I think there was a, a real understanding within the fans and uh, and observers, you know, because the time was, it would be, you know, toughen up guys, you're going to go back out on the field. Absolutely. And particularly in a pivotal game like this, where playoff seating was on the line, there's a lot of height between these top two quarterbacks. and These teams are, you know, top of the standings and, and a lot was riding on this. Uh, but I think anybody who was watching the game, I was watching the game and I could certainly feel the gravity of the situation immediately uh, when when the young man went down, when, when Damar Hamlin went down. Uh, silence just magnified and amplified the gravity of the situation. Everybody knew this was not just a, a regular run-of-the-mill football injury. This was something uh, that quickly became about life and death. And, you know, I... I really respect the Cincinnati fans for recognizing that uh, and the silence, the support was palpable from the beginning. So uh, 
yeah, I, I think this was a, a great illustration of how really life was catapulted to front and center, even in a high stakes sport environment like this. Well, you know, it also comes to mind, though, that, and I mentioned Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka in the opening, they were both criticized and heavily for prioritizing their mental health when they stepped aside from major championships. Agreed. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we look at the context in which it happens and, you know, people will always again interpret in their own way what their real motives are for doing that. And, you know, when Naomi stepped aside during the, the French Open and with the, uh, you know, the press conferences and not wanting to be part of that, some people thought that those were excuses. And likewise, with Simone Biles, they felt that, you know, maybe she was too nervous or making excuses for her performance or finding other ways to just, uh, you know, blame something else for something that they were going through. And you got to wonder if the gender aspect comes in too. But uh, certainly in this case, you can't argue with with a young man lying motionless uh, on a field requiring CPR. That that again catapults it to a whole different category of life and death versus people being able to add their own interpretations of whether or not claims of mental health or mental illness are legitimate. Yeah, I you know in the case of Simone Biles, some of the maneuvers that she performs are extraordinary for. I mean, they're breathtaking. The focus that is required to do something like that, it's not just if you're physically fit, it's also that you have to be at that peak mentally in order to be able to compete at that level and pull off those maneuvers. Because if you don't, you know, it, it could be a critical It can injury. be life-threatening. Yeah, Absolutely, exactly. yes. And and some of that came through, through, I think, when she spoke a bit more about the twisties and not being mentally clear enough to be able to do some of those maneuvers. And, you know, looking at gymnastics under that light and looking at football in lots of different ways, uh, we know lots of sports have are high risk, uh, even when we don't think about them regularly, like cycling. How often do we see major crashes in cycling that are actually life-threatening and all of those car races every weekend uh, at high speeds, you know, bobsleigh, there have been deaths in bobsleigh, hockey with those sharp blades. Uh, there are a lot of sports that really have an elevated risk of, of life-threatening uh, harm to the participants that uh, the average person doesn't necessarily think about. Well, you know, I, I am just thinking back to your point about, you know, wondering if some of this was because they are women um, and that if NFL players are saying they can't go on with the game, well, there's more justification or we or we have a tendency to believe that more uh, and have less criticism of that than we would for Naomi Osaka not wanting to do the news conference after she decides to step aside because, well, she was going to face that kind of criticism in real time. Yeah, I think we see differences in interpretation and emotional reactivity in athletes and even politicians of different types and, and, you know, people of different professions of different genders a lot. You know, we talk about, you know, the intense uh, male athlete who's upset about something and justifiably so versus the the aggressive, you know, angry angry black athlete that is often used to describe Serena Williams or or other athletes or other, you know, female politicians and such when they react in certain ways. So I I think society does have a long way to come in terms of their lens of interpretation of reactions. um, And mental health is no different uh, in that way. I think if if Novak Djokovic or Rafa Nadal were to, you know, say, you know, I can't do this press conference or I need to step aside, people would be a little bit more understanding of that. Well, hopefully now that we have seen at least a better understanding of that uh, in terms of uh, the, you know, both the Bills and the Bengals, because they were united in saying, you know, we're not going to continue on with this game tonight. That's not going to happen. Maybe now we've created a, um, a neural pathway 
<laughs> in in society to better understand that when any athlete steps forward and says, you know what, I'm not there and I'm not going to put my life on the line. Yeah, I think when we have a high profile platform like the NFL or NFL players, you know, put their foot down and really create that stance and, and put front of mind for everybody that no, something else is actually more important than football. We don't care about the standings. We, we actually don't really want to play right now. This is not about football. That was loud and clear Monday. Uh, everybody came together on that field. Unification, unity, brotherhood, family. That was loud and clear on that field. And I think everybody left Monday night feeling that same way. And the you know, outpouring of support on social media and media since that time for Damar Hamlin, who wasn't a household name prior to that event, now is known around the world. And because of this, it has brought a lot of people together. And I agree with you. I hope that this provides a platform for sport to be understood in a different way. Dr. Carla Edwards is Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. She's also a high-performance mental health advisor for both Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada. Um, And, you know, when we talk about uh, mental focus and preparedness, it's always in the aspect of winning. And, and that drive towards winning. But I think there's also got to be an understanding of the pressure that these athletes go through, that elite, elite, athlete, elite athletes have to deal with. Um, and, and maybe uh, an understanding that sometimes that can, that can break too. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the mental clarity, uh, the field vision or ice vision, I call it, the, the ability for them to be present even more than in the zone to perform well. Uh, can be extremely important for just safety, for getting through a game. Uh, if, you know, if we go back to Monday night, had they resumed that game, there probably would have been many more injuries or the caliber of the play certainly would not have been what it otherwise could have been uh, because the, the the mental acuity, the, the engagement certainly would not have been there. Anything that compromises an athlete's ability to be fully present and aware cognitively Uh, can compromise a lot of different things, including, you know, performance as well as their safety. Yeah, there's another aspect to this that I was hoping to be able to talk to you about. And that's for longer term athletes when they suffer um, a major potentially career ending injury, the impact that has on their mental health, because being an athlete has been the core of their identity from childhood. And that transition to post athletic career is a difficult one, even if the decision is yours and not due to an injury. Agrees. Yeah, I think, you know, athletes who have the opportunity to start wrapping their heads around it and preparing a foundation for life after sport have the luxury of being somewhat prepared for that. But we've seen athletes like Ryan Shazier back in 2017, uh, who was a linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers, go down with a spinal contusion and he was paralyzed for the better part of a year before he was able to walk across the stage and, you know, announce the, the draft picks for the Steelers the following year. Uh, he has since, you know, created foundations and, and come forward to talk about his journey from, you know, saying as soon as he became conscious in the hospital, I'm going to come back to the field as soon as I can, to his realization five years later that, wow, I really can't. And this is not something that's realistic. I can walk again, which is fantastic I need to embrace that. But the the perspective on life really needs to change. And likewise, other athletes who've experienced uh, you know, catastrophic injuries, Clint Malarczyk, uh, th- those types of injuries. It-, it does take a while. It takes a number of years. And it takes, I think, a good team around the athletes to help them navigate that journey and arrive at the point where they actually have to find new meaning and new purpose 
to their stories going forward. Yeah, for, for people who may not be aware, Clint Malarchuk was uh, a goalie who was sliced in the neck. The um, the skate blade nicked his carotid artery, and uh, he he was seconds away from dying. And, and he has now become a speaker on mental health issues because of what he went through post-injury. It, it didn't end his career, but it certainly uh, changed his life dramatically. And even Clint, you know, after her again waking up in hospital, having his 300 stitches to to close the wound in his throat after, you know, losing almost half the amount of blood in his body, said, I look forward to getting back on the ice as soon as I can. So that tell, speaks to the uh, the profound importance that their identity as an athlete has to these athletes when their life literally has been threatened. And the first thing they think about is getting back into their gear and playing again. Uh, so again, it takes a lot of support. And I think this really highlights the need of not just appropriate medical professionals or, or treatment training professionals on the sidelines to help when things happen, but the journey along the way outside of the sport venue really needs to be, um, you know, influenced by the right mental health professionals. We're also, and I just wanted to touch on this briefly because we're almost out of time, but we're also getting a better understanding of repeated head trauma and what that can mean for athletes uh, and how that can impact their mental health. I saw a number of tweets uh, after the incident on Monday in the NFL of people saying, you know, I would never let my kid play a full contact sport in that way where there is repeated head trauma. And we're certainly seeing more and more information about that and the impact it has because, you know, repeated head trauma and acquired brain injury can change your personality as well it can change a lot of things it can change a lot of your potential around you know academics and jobs outside of sport relationships uh people with you know traumatic brain injuries can suffer judgment challenges uh emotional dysregulation you know violence uh and and lots of other changes that that we don't really appreciate if you if we just think about it in the sport realm uh it it concerns me when you know high-profile players like Tua from Miami and even Marvin Harrison Jr. from Ohio State, who was removed from their, you know, semifinal game on the weekend because of pretty significant head trauma. You know, he said right away, I wanted to go back in there. They had to hide his helmet so he couldn't get back onto the field because in the moment, the athlete is not the best judge of when they can play. Tua has said throughout the season, I can play, I'm fine. The coach has said the same thing. But this is really when in recognition of long-term outcomes, uh, we have we understand that in the moment, no matter how big the game is, the, the long term health of the person is of utmost importance. Well, and, you know, you have to tip the hat to uh, Sidney Crosby uh, when it comes to some of these particular issues, because he took a year off the game as a franchise player to say, you know what, I've suffered a lot of concussion. I'm going to take the time it needs to actually heal from this before I get back on the ice. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a really important message. Again, the platform, the, the, the importance of the person giving that message is, is great. Um, and, and I think he did demonstrate that, you know, in the big picture, one year off is not a big thing. It may be, you know, to the, the Pen- Penguins play uh, fans for that year, but he's back and he's contributing and hopefully he's going to have better long term health for having made that decision. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Shona. Thank you. Dr. Carla Edwards is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences with McMaster University, also a high-performance mental health advisor for both Swimming Canada and Cycling Canada. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.